You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the next big trade. I'm your host, Harry Malandri from MI2 Partners. On this program, I'll talk to some of the world's foremost traders about current trends in markets and what they believe is a smart bet. We'll hear about their career journeys and, of course, find out what they're targeting as their next big trade. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the next big trade. Thanks for joining us. So this week, I'm talking to Perth Toll. I hope I pronounced that right. The founder of the Life and Liberty Indices, an index which is freedom-weighted, and there's an ETF that trades off of the FRDM index. Uh, Hi, Perth. Uh, It's great to meet you. Can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and your career? Sure. Um, I grew up in both China and the US. I was born in Beijing and came to the US at age nine. Um, After college, I went and lived in Hong Kong for a while, for about a year, and I traveled throughout um, the mainland to Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen. Um, And I saw the difference that freedom made in my life, how different my life would have been had I stayed in China versus having grown up mostly in the United States. Um, And I saw things that shocked me as someone um, who was used to having uh, different kinds of freedoms and, uh, you know, I had a friend in Shanghai who was the same age as as I was. I was 23 at the time. Um, Same as me in every other way, but she had no certificate, birth certificate, no school records, doesn't exist on paper because she was born the second child. And so things like the one child policy and its impact on my generation made me realize that policies and governance matter, that they matter for the future of a society and also the future of an economy and a market in a country. So um, that's when I kind of started exploring the, the relationship between freedom and markets. And when I came back to the States, I worked at Fidelity as a financial advisor in the Los Angeles and Houston markets. And I had a lot of clients who were from Russia, from Saudi Arabia, who felt the same way I did and said, you know, I don't want to invest in Russia because it's like funding terrorism. Like my, my Russian client actually said that, which turns out to be very prescient now. Um, and so I wanted to create a way for people to be able to participate in the great growth potential in emerging markets um, without funding autocracies. So um, so that's where the freedom-weighted kind of idea was born. So if I asked you to tell me which city was your hometown, what would you say? You know, I think I would say, uh, I, I mean, after I came to the US, I would say it was Dallas or Plano is where I grew up. Before that, it would be Beijing. Okay, because I'm an immigrant as well, an immigrant to the UK when I was six months old wow. uh, from the West Indies. And I'm definitely a North Londoner. Yeah. I mean, I can hardly pronounce TH, <laughs> which I think is the acid test. I'm a North Londoner, you know. So, yeah. But that, that's definitely my hometown. So I've got an idea about what your next big trade is, but can you talk us through your the next big trade? What What is your investment thesis? What's the opportunity? Yeah, so our thesis is basically that in the emerging markets, especially because there's so much divergence between freedom levels between countries, um, that the the freer markets in the emerging markets will perform more sustainably. They'll recover faster from drawdowns, and they use their personal and economic capital more efficiently. So, both you know human talent and economic capital, and there's less capital flight and capital destruction. 
Um, and we saw this kind of play out. Uh, we, we launched the fund in 2019. In 2020, we had COVID and the recovery from COVID. Um, so we saw this kind of faster recovery in the freer emerging markets. And even now, due to different types of governance, um, you see different COVID policies playing out differently in the emerging markets. You see zero COVID in China and then more kind of open policies in, in some of the other, other emerging markets. And you see the difference there. So, um, so we, so we, we have kind of seen this thesis play out. And, you know, also what I didn't kind of have in the initial thesis at the time, but I've, I've realized that it is an, an added benefit of the freer markets is that these are the markets that have stronger institutions. They have rule of law. They have individual and investor protections. So they're the safe havens of the emerging markets in a crisis or out of a crisis. And it's kind of like akin to a quality factor on the country level. So that's, that's what we've seen um, in the course of, the, course of the, the fund being live. And right now, I mean, it's you've got to put together more than one factor to do an in, you know to do a portfolio or an index. So if it you know because if it's only about are you investing purely in line with the with some metric of freedom, or is there investment performance objectives as well or criteria as well? I should say. So we in the beginning, so this index was incepted before the fund. So the index was incepted in 2017. Before that, we actually had another iteration of the index, which had other factors in it in combination with freedom. So freedom is the primary factor. It's on the country level. It's macro. It's top down. Um, and before, we also had yield and valuations factors. And the 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 majority feedback that we got from potential investors was, hey, you know what? If we if we wanted a value fund in the emerging markets or Something like that, we could get that elsewhere. Your main innovation is freedom. So we would actually prefer that you strip out everything else and isolate the freedom factor. So we followed that advice and isolated the freedom factor when we launched the second iteration of the index, which is the one that the FRDM index that, that is the fund is based on now. Um, and that incepted in 2017. The fund incepted in 2019. So um so we we do actually it's actually isolating the freedom factor. That is the only factor on there. Um, and it's 100% freedom weighted. It's not a freedom tilt. It's not a freedom overlay. So it's not some kind of, you know, modified equal weight or modified market cap weight. It is 100% freedom weighted on the country level. And that just means the freer countries get a higher weight, the less free countries get a lower weight, and the worst offenders as far as human rights and economic freedoms are excluded altogether. So as a result, we had no allocation to Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Turkey, and so forth. So just out of interest, bottom of the list seems quite easy because I'd imagine China and Saudi Arabia and Russia are, are, are towards the bottom of the list. Um, who's towards the top of the list? I'm guessing Venezuela is not towards <laughs> the top of the list. Yeah, Venezuela is not in our investable universe. Otherwise, it would be the very bottom of the list. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. So it is out of – so we use third-party data from quantitative data from the Cato Institute and the Fraser Institute. And they, you know, they, they score 162 countries. We only have 27 in our investable universe. So out of those 162 countries, Venezuela and Syria are like the bottom tied for the bottom you know, country. So, so yeah, if, if Venezuela were in the universe, definitely would, would be the worst scorer. Um, but the top countries in the emerging markets universe of 27 countries is our Taiwan, South Korea, Chile, and Poland. So those are kind of like the top four that are always kind of the, the top 
allocations in the index. They have moved around. So Poland was number one in 2017. And in 2018, they, they went to number four and they've basically stayed there since. You know, we are very proud of how these are the countries that have stood up for Ukraine in this crisis and have been um, the main beneficiaries, actually, of um, human migration um, from Ukraine. So, so um, in the long term, that is a is a, a very beneficial thing for them. Um, in the short term, though, it is a very tragic situation. Right. Well, you know, it may well be. I think population is important. So this is going to boost Polish population yeah. and other area countries. So it will help in that sense when they get through the initial crisis. Um, so, you know, I couldn't help it. I went to have a look at these performance numbers and your performance numbers are exceptional. Um, they're fantastic. They really are against, I checked it against the FXI, the FIXI, which is the China large cap. I don't know if that's even uh, fair. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I just Taking wanted to see how much of a factor... Out of the, out of the emerging markets. <laughs> the thing was, I wanted to check it against, uh, you know, I, I thought China was a factor all of itself. Yeah, it like, is. The, Chinese performance have been, has been absolutely dreadful. There's more than one reason why, yeah. some of which are clearly directly aligned to your point, to your to your index, and some of which are a little less clearly done. But I, I then also checked the uh, ex-China um, uh, MSI index and the EEM. Yep. Um, and funnily enough, they were both down five percent, um, even though they're not. You know, neither should have any significant. Well, EEM has China exposure. X EM X China has doesn't mm -hmm. by definition. Uh, turns out Russia wasn't that good an investment. Who knew? <laughs> My um, Russian client. But uh, right. <laughs> um, he knew. Uh, the free your the freedom index is up sixteen percent, as far as I can tell. Looking at Bloomberg, if I take a uh, the start of twenty twenty. Um, so I thought, you know, A, that's pretty huge outperformance, but it's also pretty obviously because you didn't have any China and you didn't have any Russia. And I thought to myself, well, you know, Russia, the reason why this has happened is because it's been excluded from our capital markets by sanctions. Mm. Basically, they're on a, the naughty list for the United States. Uh, for pretty obvious damn reasons. I mean, you're invading your neighbors. That's, you know, most people have noticed. <laughs> And the sanctions are a response to that invasion. Yeah. Uh, but it was a cost that was imposed externally rather yeah. than an internally driven cost. And I was looking at this and thinking, are you expecting something similar to happen to Chinese assets? Um, okay. So, so, so you mean if they invaded Taiwan? Not even if they invaded. I mean, looking at the news flow, we've had all sorts – like at the moment, Chinese assets are – uh, under pressure, a while ago, one particular Chinese company was singled out for um, naughtiness. Uh, uh, we can go into the details of naughtiness, but their business almost collapsed. I was referring to Huawei, but no. it's not the only one. There's one that actually failed. A Chinese company using US tech was excluded from US tech. Um, it's something that I've looked at. I work for MI2, and my boss got me, Julian Brigden, got me to go and do a, a Dig, dig around in what was happening in U.S. foreign policy. Wow. And uh, uh, there was a piece written by Jake Sullivan and Kurt Campbell at the end of 2019 where they talked about the coming competition with China. I think competition here isn't necessarily all benign. Mm. Um, and it just got me thinking about when you have countries you're not necessarily best mates with, you don't necessarily allow them to access your technology 
uh, particularly when you know that they're accessing your technology to get a military advantage over you in the longer term. Um, so I just got the impression that we might be in a place where we're slowly divorcing uh, China. We've already divorced Russia. This Some people have referred to it as a great bifurcation. Mm. Um, do you think that might be why it's correlated with freedom? Freedom in this case is a proxy variable for what's effectively countries which are allied with the United States? Yeah, so I think um, there's a lot there's a lot you just covered there. <laughs> so, so first of all, the first question was, you know, do I think the same thing would happen to China? Um, I think in a way, a lot of it already has. Um, so, right. so we're talking about expropriation basically here. In Russia, it was expropriation not because of their government, not from their government, but from external factors, as you say. Um, but if you look at China, for example, the MCHI index, that's the onshore and offshore MSCI China index. Um, since its inception in 1992, uh, we're approaching a 0% return for, for, for that index. Um, in, in any case, even before the recent crash, it was lower than you know, treasuries. It was abysmal. Um, and that's from 1992, that's a, that's a time of extreme growth in China. So if, if in a time of extreme growth, investors got 0%, some of that had to have been expropriated some, somehow, somewhere. Yeah. So I think that has already happened. Um, and, you know, we all know China has very opaque ownership structures, very opaque, you know, accounting uh, standards. This is just very opaque in every way. So, so we don't know where that went, but we know that it should have been probably more than 0%, right, um, for investors over that time frame. Um, so if it was 0% over the high growth you know, time frame like that when GDP was going straight up, um, good luck going forward, I guess, in, in a more bifurcated right. world. Um, and, you know, the, the second part of that, I think um, you were talking about uh, the world bifurcating and, you know, Huawei and other companies getting blacklisted and so forth. Um, I do think that on Wall Street, the narrative is still very much pro-China. Um, you know, I just came from a ETF conference um, where there was a there was a you know just a casual conversation between friends, and somebody came up and asked me and another manager if if we'd be on a panel together. This other manager was like, "I can't be on a panel with you." She literally told me, "I can't I can't be on a panel with you because you're seen as anti-China, and and our, my firm is pro-China." And so, and the first, this is just a very casual conversation in the lobby of the hotel. And, you know, I was like, first of all, this is the first time I've heard of this panel. I'm probably not doing this panel, you know, but, but she was like, oh, I can't, you know, I can't be on She's very, very, you know, like adamant about that. And I wasn't even talking about myself being on the panel. I just heard about it myself. So, yeah. um, so I think Wall Street is still very, you know, that's just one anecdote. And I think that's one manager. But if you look at, you know, BlackRock, if you look at JP Morgan, these are, these are the titans of the industry. And they can't even crack a joke about the Communist Party. I mean, they are sitting here calling for additional, you know, Russian sanctions. No problem. Can't make a joke about the Communist Party, though. You know, so, so I think Wall Street is still very much sold into that narrative. I think they're going to continue to sell it to clients. You know, BlackRock Institute, after the crash in last fall, they came out and said, we think you guys should triple your China exposure. So I don't think that Wall Street is going to be early movers on the bifurcation. <laughs> no, I, I... You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. I think you make you you're clearly making a, a good point. Yeah. It's one thing to repudiate Russian assets with an economy that you know is basically trivial. Nobody made that much money out of banking Russia. But the Chinese economy is 10, 20 times bigger than the Russian economy. Um, that's potentially a lot of stuff that people are leaving on the table. Um, you'll never get a banker to say, you know, to, to, to shut the door to the potential opportunity there. Well, I think more than that is that if a company, so, so China is not really like a free market where you compete for business by having the, the best value for your clients. It's where the government tells you who is, you know, going to be the top player in the industry. So that's a very ideal situation for a company like BlackRock to Hell go yeah. in and the, or JP Morgan or, you know, City or whoever to go in and then the government keeps all your competitors out. And you can, you can, you don't even have to provide the best value. <laughs> if you're in favor with the government, that's the only way to succeed there. So that's actually guaranteed margin. Absolutely. Very ideal. Absolutely. You know? so, <laughs> yep. so I think that's very difficult for them to turn down. No, absolutely. And they're never going to lead the way because if you're, you know, what's the phrase, a nail that sticks up is hammered down or something, right? So yeah. And who, who wants to be first in line to insult the Communist Party? Yeah. And as, as such, you know, because of that, there will continue to be alpha to be found in the freer markets. So because of that miscalculation of that or, you know, uh, blatant, you know, purposeful, you know, ignoring of that autocracy risk or working with the autocracy in this case, um, there's going to continue to be mispricing there and alpha to be had in the freer markets. But don't we have to consider how cheap the underlying asset gets? I mean, can you not, isn't there a limit to extending that, that, that rationale? I mean, that's what everyone said last August. And now look at where we are. So- oh yeah, I lost money. <laughs> I definitely lost money. I, I noticed <laughs> the amount of money I lost in Russia buying cheap things. But I mean, in the case of like Russia, there was a point where a ga- you could buy a gas company for the same price as a ranch house in San Diego. I mean, have you have you um, read Bill Browder's book? Any of his books? Red Notice. You know, I I have both read Bill Browder's. I've read criticism of Bill of Bill, yep, Bill Browder. He was. Uh, I worked in Moscow for a while. Um, so I kind of have a good sense of, I, I'm a big fan of Russians. I really love Russians. Yeah. I even loved it when they put me in custody for a while, uh, asking me for bribes. The bit where they stripped me naked in customs, cause I was ex- taking out too much caviar and held me naked in a room while they smoked. Uh, next to me, they didn't even offer me a cigarette. Can you believe that? That's it was, terrible. Like, back back in the yeah, I that was that was an uncomfortable, rather awkward, awkward moment for me and them. And I I could have sworn they were talking about me, and I thought that was kind of impolite considering I was at <laughs> a disadvantage. This, is this a true story? Like this really happened? Yeah, yeah, this really happened. I was I was going to a friend's wedding in Scotland. I was bringing uh, uh, three quarters of a kilo of caviar. The rules allow me to bring two hundred and eighty gram. Half a kilo of caviar was confiscated. Turns out that you can't take, you know, they don't take it off you just then. I had the right to call someone to bring it back to, you know, my house or something. So instead of giving me a chance to call somebody, I thought it'd be better. And I can see their point. They, for me to, they asked me to stand up, take all my clothes off and stand in a corner while they smoked and watched me for an hour till the flight was ready to take off. And then they said, okay, you can go. 
you can go now. And you're still a big investor. <laughs> no, well, you know, it, it, I I had what was a large position, and now it's a small position. But not, right, now not it's a small due to your position. own, it's because they... Not because of selling it? Yeah. No, I didn't sell anything. <laughs> it just went from $150,000 to 15 cents. Um, that okay. that kind of happened. <laughs> Um, what can I say? I don't always get them right. Okay. Um, um, that's a, that's really, a crazy story. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, that, was, that happened in the 90s. Things are different now. I'm sure really? they heat that room much better than okay. they used to. Um, that's my excuse anyway. That's but, awesome. I, that's, that's an amazing story. Did you tell that story once you got to the wedding? And uh, I did tell that story. I explained why there was only enough caviar for a relatively small number of people. <laughs> Um, the, the vodka didn't make it either for some reason, but never That's mind. Awesome. So um, you're saying all that, but, you know, going, you're trying to be even slightly serious just for a change. Yeah. Um, so we saw this phrase, common prosperity, mm. crop up recently yeah. in China. And I was thought, That's great. Common prosperity has got to be a good thing, right? Um, how could that possibly be a bad thing? But it seems to involve transfers from companies to the Chinese state. Yeah. Talk us through, you know, what this shift to the common prosperity uh, might mean for Chinese investors. Yeah, so I'm sure you saw, was it Tencent that donated like a crazy amount of money to common prosperity? Causes? It's heartwarming, isn't it? Yeah. Really heartwarming. <laughs> and that's, that's directly, it's literally stealing from Tencent investors. So that's how investors should should see common prosperity. This is a way of, you know, bribing the government for favor because again, in a government like this, you have to have the favor of the government to survive and to succeed. Um, but once you have that favor, you're, you're golden, like, you know, until, until the favor shifts. Um, so, because they'll, they'll literally keep all your competitors out. Um, we saw the favor shifting. So tech was a favored industry in China the last decade or so. Um, we saw that shift with the beginning of the debacle with Ant Financial, with the disappearance of Jack Ma. After that, you saw tech entrepreneurs stepping down left and right, resigning, or donating huge amounts of money coming from, you know, basically investor shareholder value um, to, to common prosperity. How much of that money do you think goes to benefit common prosperity? <laughs> I, I assumed all of it. <laughs> But then, I, but I bought Russian stocks. <laughs> so, so yeah, no, um, that's that's going to be uh, a major. That's actually a major policy priority now. This common pri uh, prosperity, and I think they're selling it to the people. Um, it, it's very popular, and they're selling this to people as, "Hey, we're here for for you guys, for the little guys, and we don't care about these rich tech entrepreneurs." And the people are like, "Yeah, we don't care about them." You know, and and we feel like Xi Jinping is here for us, for the little guys, because he's you know cracking down on these rich people. So that's um, that's common prosperity, and <laughs> it's going to be very popular, and it already is very popular on the ground with people in China. And so the the main uh, objective of any authoritarian government is to stay in power, and this will help them stay in power because the people like common prosperity and the narrative that they're selling. So, so that's going to continue to be a thing. And for investors, uh, especially in the no longer favored industries like tech, and the, by the way, the biggest companies are the ones that are the most easy targets, right? 
um, there's kind of a saying in China. I have a, I have a friend who is a China investor, and he um, is has a company based in China, also Taiwan. Um, so he's in both, and and he has told me, you know, it's it's good to stay kind of in the middle. Like you don't want to be like too small. But you don't want to be one of the big ones because that's just like a big target on your back. So you just try to you stay under the radar. <laughs> that's how you how you survive. Right. And so the biggest companies are the ones that index investors are most exposed to because indexes are market capitalization weighted. The higher the 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 bigger the company, the more your allocation to that company. And that's why emerging markets indexes are you know, 32% China and used to be 41% China at its height in August 2020 because of the size of Chinese companies and the market there. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of, that's going to be a thing. And, and the index investors are the ones that are going to be the most affected by that. So this is where we go back to this question about cheapness, because it's true, something really bad just happened to Chinese stocks. Not quite as bad as what happened to Russian stocks, but <laughs> um, something really bad happened. And I was looking just, you know, it's a, a little bit of prep for this thing. I looked up where Baba was trading. Uh, you know, it's a big index stock and, you know, they've got, they've got a, the underlying premise of that business is not significantly different to, say, Amazon. They control right. an awful lot of B2B and uh, B2C commerce on the internet for China. It's a big market. And Baba's trading about 13 times. I think Amazon's trading in the 30 times. Uh, estimated earnings for Baba are like 42 bucks. The thing's trading at 90. It's not far off two times earnings, right? Yep. Um, if they paid a dividend, I'd argue that it's hard to see how you lose money getting along with that asset at about that price. It's not so unusual for all the others. I know that they're going to rip me off. And uh, some of that money is going to get stolen to for the benefit of the common prosperity. And thank you so much. I'm, I'm glad everyone's pleased. I, I'm, if I were to invest, I'd be happy to contribute a small amount to the common <laughs> prosperity. Um, cost of doing business, but That's right? because you've been held um, without clothes in a cell where people smoked and laughed at you. So, I mean, you are you have higher tolerance. I've got to say, at the time, I didn't mind the smoking. See, you have a, a much higher tolerance <laughs> for this. If, I, if that yeah. happened to me, I would not, I would be pissed. <laughs> so, I would well, certainly you know, not it, be a <laughs> It was 1998, you know, I've, I've had time to, I, I know they weren't being flattering. It was cold. That was my excuse. So, I mean, but, um, some investors like yourself have a higher tolerance for this type of thing, you know, but, you know, some investors like myself, I'm saying, you know, that's a risk that is, that's not calculable. Like you can't calculate that, that risk of total loss of capital. So, right. um, so yeah, that's, you know, yeah, it is, it is, you know, by value metrics alone, if you look at PE alone, um, yeah, it looks attractive. But it's not. We don't exist in a world where one metric is the whole story. So there are other parts of the story. Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> I'm I'm thinking to myself. Uh, apart from thinking about how cold it was back then, uh, I was thinking to myself, uh, what is the scenario you can imagine? that could happen to justify that kind of discount to U.S. stocks? How bad can you imagine things get? Well, here's the thing, though. Things don't have to be that bad to have favorable valuations like that. All of emerging markets has similar valuations like that. Yet you have markets, especially in a bifurcating world, that are going to benefit from this, uh, you know, kind of divorce from China. Um, you have markets like Taiwan, Indonesia, South Korea, uh, Vietnam in the frontier markets, India even, Mexico, South Africa, all these markets that can benefit from this bifurcation. 
that also have the similar uh, valuations. And without this level of autocracy risk, I mean, China yeah. is not backing down on their rhetoric about not only invading other countries, not just Taiwan, but you know, they're in the South China Sea. They're they're doing this to, to many other countries, um, to India as well. And so, I mean, it's even the countries are not considered allies. They're they're still you know inv- invading and, or talking about invading or actually circling their their waters and so forth. Uh, you know. I would use a different phrase. I would say that China has its strategic interests, which may not be entirely consistent with other countries' Mm -hmm. strategic interests. Yeah. So (laughs) mealy-mouthed way of saying almost exactly the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, no, they they do. They have their own interests, and that's exactly what they call it. And they're saying, you know, do not interfere with our national security, our own security interests. Um, and if you do, you know, we're coming for you, that type of deal. So I, I got to say the <laughs> phrase fills me with with a, a, a certain amount of trepidation <laughs> because I saw the Russians say roughly speaking the same thing before this kicked off into a giant war. Yeah. Um. So it does make me worry about where things are going. And it makes me think there's a reason why U.S. investors are uh, cheapening, you know, yeah. and not buying Chinese assets where they are. Um, you'd think for Chinese investors, they would be an attractive location. Um, and it's really kind of interesting that Chinese investors are not supporting these companies more aggressively. I guess it might be a transitional period. More investors where, in China? Yeah. I mean, if if an investor in China doesn't like these big index companies, it does not fill me full of confidence because yeah. they are – they have no significant way of evading that kind of political risk. For yeah. them, they should be relatively neutral to Well, it. for the Chinese investor, the, the, the it's very um, it's a very highly retail market, and a lot of it is akin to a casino. So, and a lot of it is is looking at cues from from government rhetoric. So, if they're not, yeah, you're right. They're it's all based on what they think the government is going to do, and if they're not. And I haven't looked at the numbers to see if Chinese investors are, you know, biting at these these price points. Uh, but if they're not, then that is, yeah, that's absolutely a bad sign. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-ads.com. You're right. Perth, let, let's talk about the the risk-reward on the trade. Uh, how big should it be for a retail investor? How should you best express it? Would you trade with a stop? Should it be an investor's biggest trade? Should what be? Should uh, a freedom indexed? Uh, position in uh, EM be a how big should that be for for an investor? You mean as part of your EM allocation? Yeah, or as yeah, any so, any metrics you like. Give me some yeah. idea of how much I should put on this. So there's 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 two type of investors that invest in the FRDM index product. So uh, one is the person who says, okay, I see what's happening in the world. I don't want to contribute to this 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 one side of it. Um, I want to contribute the side, to the side that's promoting, you know, peace and, and freedom for their for their citizens and for the other citizens in the world. Um, so they're they're aligning their values with their investments. That's one kind. The other kind is saying, I think freer markets will outperform. 
And so like, for example, I'm both kinds. So I, I don't want to, I do want to invest in the free markets for values alignment, but also for outperformance. Um, and so it depends on, on what you're looking for there. And we have investors who use FRDM um, index products as their uh, primary and 100% of their emerging markets allocations. We have investors who use it in conjunction with another ESG type of product. Um, and we have investors who use it with another non-ESG emerging markets product like value emerging markets. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of people that use it um, isolated, but also a lot of people use it in combination. So it just depends on, you know, what your kind of take on emerging markets is right now. We do have a very extreme approach where it's, you know, no China, no Russia, no Saudi Arabia, or maybe you don't want something that extreme and you want a little bit of exposure, you know? So, so, so that, that can happen and it can be used whichever way the client wants. Now, we're talking about long-term investors. I did create this for the strategic investor who always has an EM allocation. Uh, but you're talking about maybe traders as well. You know, what's the next big trade? And maybe with traders uh, that are looking at more country level, like country level ETFs, you know, I would say the ones that are bifurcating, um, that are benefiting from the bifurcation are Taiwan, and with its, especially with its strength in semiconductors and, you know, chips being in such short supply there. Also, leaders of the world in in that technology, Chinese semiconductor companies like SMIC are at least five years behind in their technologies. So there's no way they're going to catch up to kind of uh, participate in this this shortage right now. Uh, but they're trying to. It's very difficult, I think, for for them to innovate because of the way their market is set up. Um, so I, I don't have a lot of I'm not bullish on that. But companies like Taiwan Semiconductor, like MediaTek in Taiwan, which is a smaller chip producer um, that gets less attention. There's other smaller chip producers in Taiwan to look at yeah, in, the, in the near term. Um, South Korea is taking a lot of hits right now, maybe providing some, some value there as well. Um, Indonesia, Vietnam, and, uh, and Thailand actually are, are markets that could benefit from this bifurcation out of China, um, as well as Mexico and India. Those con- countries I just named, we don't have all of them yeah. in, the, in the index, but for your kind of trader um, audience, that may be something to look at. I gotta, you got to like Vietnam because they have a foot in both camps. I was really amused yeah. to find out that some Chinese companies have relocated their production, production <laughs> facilities to Vietnam. Right. Uh, because that way it, it takes a made-in-China label off their product. Yeah. Um, so they too benefit from it. It's kind that's of that's a that's a good workaround. <laughs> yeah. No, we actually, you know, just to be clear, we believe trade is good, right? We don't we don't want to take away all trade um, from China or other countries. Like, you know, we have a lot of we we invest in companies that do a lot of trade with China. So trade, the more trade, the better. That's part of their economic freedom. And these companies that trade with China, they could choose not to at any point. The only difference is they're not they're not subject to that direct autocracy risk where the comp- the you know government can overnight uh, stroke of a pen say oh by the way you're nonprofits now like they did with the tech with the education companies last year right yeah. overnight friday night they're like okay all right. online education companies you're now nonprofits and these companies went basically to zero overnight and has have never recovered you know the founders are breaking down in their meeting and crying about it. it's it's insane uh, and these are very profitable companies. These like, are these are billion, multiple billion dollar companies. Yeah. Edu, uh, what's the other one? Um, Tal, right? 
I mean, look at what happened to those two companies, EDU and so They're basically subject to confiscation. Yeah. Like in, this was what, August? So look at what happened to those two companies in August. And that's, that's your risk. That's the risk we don't want to take. You see, the other side of this, the, the autocracy risk cuts both ways. And mm-hmm. you can have a company die because somebody in the CCP decides this is not good for ordinary people. We're going to shut you down. But you can also have a company die because the US authorities decided to kill one company and the Chinese decide to retaliate uh, by killing off a, an American company in China. You know, So you, you can get friendly fire. You can get weird things that happen where because of US policy, it, it results in an equivalent Chinese policy to shut something Let's down. Let's explore that for a second. You're saying because uh, you're saying a company could die because Chinese government shuts it off, or U.S. shuts down a Chinese company and China could shut down a U.S. company in, in retaliation. Yeah, or vice versa. The the Chinese could shut down something. Okay, I'm gonna take that one step back and say, okay, I I think that a company could die because the Chinese government shuts it down, but also the same thing or similar thing to a lesser degree d- does happen in the United States to our own companies. Right, so the so we could make policies that hurt our own industries and companies, um, and we do. It's we're not perfect yeah. in the yeah. United States either, or any of these other developed markets who are very, you know, based on the rankings, very free. Um, this happens everywhere. There is no one hundred percent free country. There is no one hundred percent oppressive country. It's all relative, right? So you know, we're maybe the one of the least worst, right? But it still happens here. So that that does happen. Now, as far as what you're saying. Like, okay, we shut down Huawei, they shut down what? Like, I don't see, I don't see that other side happening because they, we don't have exposure. I, I think uh, that most uh, American companies, right now, China wants to make uh, it look like a great place to do business for foreign investors. So they, try, they don't want to switch off FDI. So I suspect we're, so we're not going to see much of that. But one of the things you notice with what happened with Russia and Ukraine is it really wouldn't take much to get reciprocal sanctions. If sanctions are imposed by the US, sanctions can be reverse imposed by China. And you don't know who decides to do that. Okay, so perfect example of this actually happened in the political world, right? So we sanction, we like Magnitsky or whatever, we sanctioned people in in China for certain human rights issues. Mm -hmm. Like I believe Carrie Lam was involved in um, other, sure. Other yeah, Carrie Lam has her credit card stopped working at one point. Yeah, yeah, and so we sanctioned those individuals, and then they came back and sanctioned some of our politicians. But that had zero impact on our politicians because our politicians don't have money in China. They don't have property in China. They don't send their kids well, to school in maybe China. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we shouldn't say a hundred percent of them. Okay. <laughs> but okay. Yeah. I, I agree. So I'm with you there. But you know, these particular ones that were sanctioned. It was more like a badge of honor for them. They're uh, like, oh, absolutely. Yes. You know? And so they were like, you know, this doesn't affect us at all. So it, it's like the, I, I believe they did this to the UK as well. Some UK, um, sure. yeah, human rights people. And with the national security law, they can they can do this to any, they're threatening nice, jail. That's a nice big stick they've got there. Yeah, yeah. And so it's, it's an extraterritorial. So they can yeah. come after us, say, oh, we don't like your freedom waitings, you're sanctioned or whatever, you know, so they could do that. And so, you know, that, that could happen to anyone. And I think it affects us much less than it affects them just because our banking systems, you know, are, we, we do have 
strong institutions and strong banking systems, strong rule of law, where it's a safe place to put assets. And so a lot of these these guys have assets here or in the UK and so forth, where it doesn't work the other way because we don't have assets over there because we have our own strong banking systems here and we don't put our assets in China or Russia. So, oh, well, you know, Mr. Elon Musk might, oh, you know, a, he, he might have some hostages. Uh, <laughs> I, that's a really, that's a big exception, Elon Musk. And um, he, he's been very vocal um, with US kind of social issues. And would be I, a shame if something nasty happened to that nice big gigafactory yeah, you've got there. That's a, that's a really good point. Yeah. That's a, that's a big, big one. <laughs> so uh, there are one. a lot of corporate investors in China as well. Yeah, so, I mean, there are hostages. It's just not retail hostages. But, that's um, true. You're right. Uh, You're so right. I always ask this question, and I, you know, I've taken up a lot of your time already. So um, what does a thesis violation look like for your investment thesis? How would you know if you were wrong? Um, how would I know if I was wrong? Like... I mean, I'm not saying that I'm necessarily right 100% of the time right now. I think- Oh, you um, have been is, right. I mean, you're up 16%. EEM is down 5%. Um, you've been right. I, thank you. Um, I think that's not so much uh, skill as just the the way things happened. You know, we didn't know COVID was going to happen and there's going to be a worldwide recovery where freer markets would showcase their, their faster recoveries. We didn't know- Russia was going to invade Ukraine. So this is not any prediction power on my part. Um, and I like to say this is this is a joke that didn't land at the conference recently. But as Warren Buffett said, <laughs> you know, investment success is not related to IQ. So, <laughs> yes, he's not landing with you either. I'm obviously bad at this. So yeah. that was a joke. No, I was just gonna. I was just gonna say that actually. That was the exact um, reaction I had at the conference. By no, the way. but I think you're wrong. I think I think I've noticed that I get luckier the more the more work I do, and uh, okay. I think it could be the you know you're saying that you've got a proxy for freedom here. This index is yeah. a freedom proxy. I think it's an index of friends of the U.S. proxy, and they they can both be true. Uh, but if it's the latter and the world is bifurcating, you will continue to do better. You will continue to do well. Because we may not be able to even own these Chinese securities by the time this thing blows up as bad as it could blow up. Yeah, um, I I do believe that freer markets will outperform just because um, they do have the conditions on the ground to support and uh, incentivize growth and innovation. You know, if, if you're incentivized to provide the best value for your clients and that's how you grow, then that's better for the market as a whole, better for your company. If you're free to, to put the interests of your company and your shareholders first before that of the state, that's more incentivization to, to, um, to kind of do the best for your clients. And so I think that by, you know, by making other people's lives better, these companies do better and that's yeah. a better system than you know, making the state more powerful and doing better that way. So I think, um, so yeah, I do, I do believe that the thesis will, will continue to show alpha ad, especially, um, especially as Wall Street continues to kind of sell the other narrative and um, help us with that way with their miscalculations. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, no, I, I, <laughs> uh, what I appreciate about what you said, which I think is very rare on Wall Street, is that you think the bifurcation of the systems will lead to U.S. Um, I guess, and its allies 
succeeding and winning the you war, know, so to speak. I'm I'm a complete idiot, so I wouldn't take anything <laughs> I say. No, I think that's a, actually proof, a rare but, thing because I think a lot of people believe that it's the opposite that China and their kind of China-led world order or the authoritarian-led world order will be more successful. And I think my friend um, Dan Rasmussen at I'm saying his name wrong, but at at uh, Verdadcap wrote a book about the 1890. Uh, I'm going to get the year wrong as well. About a slave uprising, and I, I believe 1811. Um, and some of the slaves in this uprising um, sided with the slave owners because they thought that that was the winning side, and it was a survival mechanism. And I think yeah. a lot of Wall Street does the same thing. We think we're, we side with power. We think, okay, China is the next great superpower, so we're going to side with them. But I think that's wrong. Is it, you know what? The power is in you. Like you have the power as investors. Uh, I'm I am so much more cynical than you can even conceive of. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, by allocating assets, we can change outcomes, and I think that that's where we come in and we try to make that easy for investors. So I, I definitely I'm not saying that what you say is not true. I believe it yeah. is true. But what I saw happen in the case of, but what I think is happening, some of the things I see happening in the case of China is that there are people who have an agenda and they, their agenda is important, it's meaningful, it's significant for foreign policy, and it involves reducing our reliance on what they believe to be a hostile power. They believe China is, uh, is not a friend of the United States and it's a competitor. And you know, the logic of that might just inevitably result in us not having the freedom to choose, to be able to choose to buy Chinese assets in the end. Um, it might be that they make that, that laws are passed to make that difficult to do. Or even if laws are not passed, uh, policies can be implemented which make it dangerous to be invested in Chinese assets. I don't know if it's good or bad. Um, it might be bad, but I, I could definitely see how I might lose a lot of money owning big cap Chinese stocks. Yeah, no, that would be bad in my opinion. Um, we do consider the freedom to own what assets you want, the freedom to trade and so forth as a economic freedom metric in our in our data. And so if that happens, the United States would drop on their scale on our economic freedom side of the, the equation. Um, so, so that I hope does not happen. And, yeah. you know, I don't think it's necessary. I think investors are you know, smart enough to choose for themselves um, where they want to invest. If they want to be allocated to China, they, they're okay with that risk. You know, you're okay with being held, you know, naked with smoking people. Like, I, think, <laughs> I think I think okay is possibly pushing a point a bit. Okay, it yeah. wasn't, I didn't, I didn't consider it a selling point. Right? Yeah. It, wasn't, it wasn't a positive. So, like I mean, Disney I think investors, you know, can choose for themselves. And I think that the private uh, sector, like ourselves, we exist for investors who don't want to invest that way. And so, you know, we already provide the solution. We don't need the government to come in and tell us how to invest. You know what I mean? So, so that would be my view on that. Like, I don't think it should be made mandatory. I think investors are big boys and girls and we can choose for ourselves how we want to invest. Well, I chose wrong last time, but I take your point. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, but that's, that's your freedom to make mistakes. That's freedom right there. Yeah, next time, man, help me out. And if, I, if I'm going to make a dumb call like that, could someone give me a phone call? So, um, Perth, it's been great speaking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Let's, I hope we can get to talk again about these kind of no, issues. Thank you. It's, it's, it's really pleasure. interesting. 
Um, if someone wants to kind of look into your work and and uh, get a, a better idea of your funds, where should they look? Yeah, so our um, index site is lifeandlibertyindexes.com. Our fund site is freedometfs.com. And um, the index ticker is FRDM Index. Um, I am on Twitter as well. Um, I'm not as active as I used to be uh, because as we get busier, but I am still somewhat active. Uh, under a Perth underscore toll is my handle. Yeah, I shall I shall immediately go and follow you. Thanks for coming <laughs> on. Until the next time, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right, that's a wrap on the next big trade. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and as always, head over to realvision.com for financial insight you won't find anywhere else. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com